You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Inflation, recession, stagflation. Just what the hell is going on? Hi there. Thanks for tuning in to another Real Vision podcast. So, what the hell is going on? We all want to know. Here at Real Vision, we've debuted a special series called Global Recession. Is everyone wrong? We've called on the world's best experts, including Juliette de Klerk, David Rosenberg, Peter Zion, Pierre Andoran, and many more, to try and help us make sense of things. These real experts will be giving Real Vision members in-depth, long-form analysis on the real stuff that's happening. Best of all, you can get access to all 14 days of Global Recession, Is Everyone Wrong?, for just $1. Yep, $1. So head to realvision.com slash global recession. That's realvision.com slash global recession to join us on this epic two-week journey of discovery. everyone. Welcome to The Daily Briefing. It's Tuesday, May 17th, 2022. I'm Maggie Lake. Here with me today is Vincent Delaware, Director of Global Macro Strategy at Stonex. Hi, Vincent. It's great to see you again. Hi, Maggie. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to interact with you and the Real Vision audience. Fantastic. And, and it's an interesting day, isn't it? Because we're seeing this big rally in equities today. Um, we have the NASDAQ Finishing, it looks like up with 2.76%, S&P up 2%. I mean, we're still settling here, but Russell up 3%. Uh, and at the same time, we have the Fed chairman, Jay Powell, testifying before Congress, doing his best to sound as hawkish as possible, saying, listen, we're not going to hesitate to keep raising rates till we get inflation under control, even if that means moving past what's broadly understood to be you know, neutral. Um and, and the VIX is down 4%. We did see bonds, the 10-year, kind of move back up toward 3%. But what do you make of this market action? I think it's really a reflection of how overblown these, these recession fears were. Mm. Um, so we basically have, you know, Caribbean and Silla, like two uh, uh, wrecks that we want to, two perils that we want to avoid. Um, and depending on where we are in the cycle, sometimes we focus. So one is inflation and high rates. Uh, the other one is, is recession and the idea that, you know, the Fed is going to tighten into a, a mistake. Um, and a couple of months back, clearly the, the biggest peril was what is perceived to be uh, inflation. And we had such a shift in sentiment with, you know, everybody starting to price in a recession, yada, yada, that you get a day like that. I think people focus more on, I think we also had a uh, retail sales that, that came out pretty mm-hmm. strong. Um, so, okay, the economy is not in a recession and we, we kind of have a typical risk on move like, like we'd have, you know, five years ago where you see, uh, you know, um, small caps outperform, VIX going down, yields go up. Uh, so it does bring a sense of normalcy, which is nice. And I do think that on the, on the economy, it's more correct. I, I think the, uh, um, the sort of moral panic around the recession of 2023 was not supported by the data. I mean, we still have an economy that's, you know, as far as I can tell, growing by 11, 12% nominal. 
Um, so to think that we can slow in, in six months into a recession seems excessive to me. So um, that's that's welcome. Yeah, that that's interesting because you really you really do get the sense that everyone is looking forward. And when you see things like retail sales, which were up one percent, um, not sure how much of that was actually higher prices that we were all paying, or how much of it was was actual demand. But but still, they they were holding up. Uh, we saw factory production holding up pretty strong as well. You know, but we've had these sentiment readings like home builders today down the U Michigan last week down at a ten year low. So I think it, people are wondering about timing. So do you not? Do you think that? we are not going to go into recession and the economy is strong enough to withstand higher rates or are, do you just disagree on when that happens? Well, I mean, eventually we will have a recession that's, you know, <laughs> making a, a forecast without a time attached to it is, <laughs> you know, sure. Hey, you know, like all the strategies to go on TV to so they expect more volatility. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, um, the hard question is when, uh, and there, yes, I think I disagree with the, what well, seems to be the consensus, I, one thing that I thought was interesting about what sentiment might be was the, the Bank of America, Merrill Lynch uh, monthly survey. They surveyed, you know, actual, you know, serious money managers, 100 millions of in assets or more. And it struck me that, you know, the so the, the biggest worry was obviously the Fed hiking cycle, and we all agree on that. And the second one, by large margin, was recession over inflation. I, I would fit mm. these two. Um, I mean, I agree that, you know, for, for any asset manager, the biggest risk obviously is, is you know, we're at the beginning of a hiking rate and, you know, because the discount, it's the, the risk-free rate is in every discount rate. So for risk assets, this is the biggest one. But then after that, uh, I think the biggest concern remains that the economy is too hot rather than too cold. Now, maybe we'll get there. My guess is that we will get there. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, my views on inflation is, is very much structural. It's very much driven by by supply side concern. Um, so really, the only way to slow it down will be to destroy a tremendous amount of demand. And yeah, it'll probably mean throwing the economy in, into a big recession. But I do not think we are anywhere close to this. I mean, we still have, um, you know, real rates are on minus 6%. Uh, financial conditions are still incredibly easy. Yes, you know, if you get chunk spreads, you know, it's, it's, it's up to about 4%, but it's still below inflation. So I think really the investors are kind of, you know, rushing to the end of the play and thinking that it's going to be over in, in 10 months. It may take 10 years. I mean, if you look at the experience of the 70s, mm -hmm. um, you know, it took 10 years between when inflation started to go out of control after the, the dollar went off the dollar, the, the gold standard, to Volcker. That's what it took for uh, the nation to develop the kind of courage and um, strength to do what it takes to slow inflation. So I, I really don't think we're there yet. And, and I think people who worry about recession are, are focusing on the wrong risk. Okay, there's a lot to unpack there. I want to stay on the inflation for a moment. And and we've got questions coming in, some of them super specific about how to navigate through this. John, Paul, Roger, Adam, welcome to the conversation. I'll get to those in a minute, but I think it's really understand, uh, important to understand your macro framework here. Um, and and I want to come back to growth and inflation, but let's start with inflation because you were early and right on the risk of high inflation. It took a lot of people, including the Federal Reserve, a long time to kind of catch up and, and lock into that. So it, are you still expecting that inflation remains high for longer? What is your inflation forecast at this point right now? Well, Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. So I, I've been uh, 
very early inflation so even before covid i was <laughs> i was worried about inflation so obviously uh i i have not given up but i have come up with a report acknowledging that inflation has probably peaked in march all else equal and that is a very important condition one that is very difficult to 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 maintain given the kind of macro uncertainty that we have all else equal i would expect that 8.5 was the high uh, for this cycle and and the re- reason is that you know inflation is really a tug of war at this point uh between two parts of the cpi uh if we can so, so, so show the chart uh called the tail of two inflations but from a latest report basically you have your, your covid plus energy plus supply chain basket like the, the used car um gasoline uh air tickets all that stuff that really went crazy uh because of the reopening and all that stuff and there it's moderating right i mean these things cannot increase by 50 percent every <laughs> every month so it's not getting much better i would argue it's it's just stabilizing but again because of base effect the contribution to inflation is lower so that's 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 the deflation disinflationary aspect of, of the cpi right now and then on the other side you have the inflationary aspect which is the secure part of the, uh, the cpi services wage and shelter um, and for the near term i would say the next six months the disinflationary winds will be slightly stronger than the inflationary winds so that should result in inflation slowing now i believe it will not slow as fast as the fed wants it most most Big banks have forecast about 4.4.5 at the end of the year. I think that's what the Fed has in the ACP. I do not think that will be the case. So what I would expect, assuming nothing, no other macro shock, is inflation slows very, very, very slowly uh, to finish the year at about 6%, um, which I don't think is enough to get the the pivot that the Fed wants. And, And one thing that is especially worrying to me, and I think, really for markets is is that there will be a pause in that slowdown in the summer. So if you remember last year, oil prices were quite weak in the summer, they went down to almost $60 a barrel, mm-hmm. uh, so that these base effects are going to get harder. So it will look for a couple of months that inflation is no longer slowing. And I worry that could be the, the next down leg for the market. If, if we have, uh, you know, if by September inflation is still at 7%, there will be a kind of a brutal awakening. Right now, we are pricing this kind of recession, dovish people thinking that this is going to play out like like 2018. You know, the Fed is going to over tighten and then they'll walk it back. I think this is um, delusional, uh, and and removing that delusion could get us to that second down leg in the bear market. So we already had basically more than 20 percent down on the S and P 500. Mm. Uh, that's not the hard part. If you remember 2008, uh, the hard part was, you know, September, October 2008, when you get the next 20%. And that could be the trigger for, for that downfall because then we'll need to start repricing risk assets for, for the fact that, you know, all these nice stories that we, we hear on Bloomberg, oh, where is neutral? Are they going to go? Over? You know what? No one knows where neutral is. I mean, it's just like a, a purely academic concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Fed will just, you know, navigate, you know, as it sees it, but there is no anchor in, in the far future that they can follow. So that 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 is that is extremely concerning for risk assets. Um, do you think that we are definitely going to see that 
20% leg down? I mean, would you expect that to happen for U.S. equities, or is it, or do, does it all have to come together on that sort of supply side of the inflation? If I understand, you're making a difference between that sort of services, wages, and then the more kind of commodity-led supply side. Are you fully anticipating that next leg of the bear market for for risk assets? Well, uh, on the commodity side, on the commodity side, it's kind of hard to tell. I mean. So in my forecast, I was assuming that the COVID plus Ukraine plus supply tra- supply chain tra- uh, basket, the index stays where the indices stay where they are. So there's no longer inflation. There's no longer disinflation. Um, it's just base effect. I mean, there's disinflation because the base effects are getting easier, but but these things are no longer rising in price. For what it's worth, I think that's that's as good a forecast as one can make. I think in, with mm. commodities in general, the spot is the best predictor of future prices. Uh, with things like used cars, I'm actually trying to buy one right now. It doesn't seem like it's going down. Yeah. Uh, uh, maybe it's not, it's not as crazy as it was two months ago, but we still have the shortages. We still have, I mean, so that, that's why I'm keeping it where it is. Uh, now, these things could change, right? I mean, both ways, by the way. Huh? I mean, it could, it could slow down. I hope it slows down more than, than I expect, but it could also go up higher. I mean, I can think of a number of inflationary shocks, macro shocks. China is going to reopen. I mean, we, we have $114 uh, gasoline, uh, sorry, um, um, uh, oil prices with with China and the, a good chunk of China under lockdowns. Uh, and, you know, China consumes half of everything. We could see some stimulus out of China. Uh, we could also see something really bad happen in, um, I mean, you see Sri Lanka. You could see the same thing happen in Egypt, in, um, you know, Tunisia, in uh, uh, India, Pakistan. I mean, when you have a kind of balance of payment type crisis, you know, dollar is strong, oil prices is high, and wheat prices are very high for countries that, you know, where more than 50% of your of your consumption basket is, is made of, of food or energy. I mean, this is really a dire situation. So you could have ch- shocks either way. So that's why I kind of kept it where I wanted. Mm. Uh, and in the middle, as far as the stickier part, I don't see how that slows. Um, I mean, if anything, it seems to be accelerating to me. If you look at one part of the CPI that was somewhat deflationary, what was uh, mental care, which is somewhat odd, right? Because in the middle of pandemic, usually... Healthcare costs in the U.S. had risen always faster than inflation, and then this was kind of the opposite. And in in April, we saw uh, accelerating uh, medical care prices, um, shelter also accelerating. Um, so I, again, there's so much momentum. These things move slowly, so I do not see how services, wages, or shelter decelerate by the end of the year. Hmm. So in that case, it sounds like you're saying that the we have a, a question from Ralph saying, what is the biggest risk? What's the right risk to focus on? It sounds like you think the right risk to focus on is inflation because it will mean higher rates for longer or, or, yeah. or a more severe tightening cycle than people than people believe. Yes, I and especially kind of the middle to long end of the curve in the front. I think it's. You know, we priced a lot of tightening already. You know, we, we you know, the, the two-year went from zero to three percent in in a, in a couple of months. Um, Powell's been pretty clear about what he wants to do. He, you know, he took out the seventy-five, uh, said, "Okay, I'm going to do 50. I think the market is is right for the for the short end because there's not not that much uncertainty there. Uh, what worries me is that kink in the curve. So if you look at the uh, like, uh, euro dollar. Uh, Maybe you have it in the chart. Uh, 
maybe you can show the chart. Anyway, if you get your other curve, it kind of falls very rapidly. That the, the Fed, you know, is expected to raise raise until um, closer to closer to three percent, and then started in in um in its May twenty twenty three, we priced two cuts. That's the part that worries me. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Let, let me jump in, Vincent, because if you're, if, if you're talking about persistently high inflation and prices, and you're talking about a Fed that is hiking rates at least through the end of this year, wouldn't that dampen economic growth? I mean, that's why people think there's going to be a recession because, you know, high prices are the cure for high prices and that people will pull back. Because they, they just don't, that wages aren't keeping up with inflation. Right. Well, for now, wages are keeping up with inflation. Um, if you look, um, my favorite um, economic indicator, real time indicator, is uh, um, the, the daily Treasury statement where the, the US Treasury shows how much taxes it's collecting from, from the various sources. Um, and there's really uh, um, three that I'm focusing on. One is uh, the withheld income tax. Um, so this is the stuff that I pay and presumably you pay people on a normal uh, paycheck and we, we get our federal income taxes withheld. That's at 12.5% year over year. Hmm. Uh, still is today. So, you know, I, I think inflation is, you know, maybe 8 9%, something like that. That still leaves you like, you know, 3 4% real GDP growth. Um, and then the part that's uh, really booming is... Um, non-withheld stuff, individual non-withheld, which, you know, is I think it's up 70% year over year. It's, it's huge. Part of it, I think, is is the, um, the effect of the, the crypto, everything bubble last year. People have a lot of capital gains. Uh, but part of it, I think, is also the rise of the economy. Uh, people driving Uber, creating content on the OnlyFans or uh, YouTube or whatever. Like they, they're and that's a part that I think the Fed does not really see or understand because its its models are based on the um, the BES survey and things that, that are kind of tilted towards old economy employers. Um, so to me, incomes are rising very very fast. Um, yeah, sure they, they will decelerate, uh, but but not not yet. Uh, the the third part um, that I look at is corporate income tax collection, and that's growing a lot less fast, around seven eight percent. Uh, so in other words, and I think we see that in earnings where we see, I mean, earnings are not horrible, but given given how rapidly the top line is growing, the fact that your, your bottom line is is not growing as fast, tell you the, the margins are really getting eaten up. I think that's where it shows first. Mm-hmm. Uh, first, you need to see it. First, earnings slow down, and then you'll see the economic slowdown. That's the that's proper sequence. So that's why I'm worried about asset prices more than I'm worried about the economy also because asset prices are forward-looking, right? So... Uh, this is a really, really important point, I think, because you're you're sort of separating out. I mean, we tend to, and and we've been told to kind of conflate the two about the wealth effect. And you know, the day we see the stock market, you know, right across the screen, that that some, somehow is reflective of the economy. But you're you're making a really 
stark distinction between what's happening in asset classes and and to the wealth of those who hold assets, I suppose, and then what's happening in the real economy when it comes to jobs and workers and wages and that sort of stuff. And, and I think there is a bit of a selection bias from people who, who go on financial TV or who make forecasts and tend to be wealthy. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, we see, you know, crypto collapse and then we see, you know, most tech stocks are down like 70, 80% from the top. And clearly we think, oh, this cannot last. There, there will be a recession. For the vast majority of people, the stock market does not exist. Or if it exists, it's just a number that's out there. Like, I, I don't really see people slow their consumption because the stock market's down. I In, in one of the reports, I, I mentioned that we think of the economy, I call that the drunk bank, banker economy, uh, which is where uh, basically the, the there's a banker and the bonus pool is good. So he goes out, parties quite a bit, for some tips. Um, and then the recession is kind of a hangover for that. And that's that's what we've lived for the past, you know, 12 years we always had. It was always a demand problem. So, uh, you know, when, when asset prices went up too much, you know, that you'd have more spending and then asset price go down, that would that resolve the problem. I think it is different this time. I think this time you don't focus on the drunk banker, you focus on the waiter. The power has mm-hmm. come back, I think, to, to workers. Uh, because right now, yeah, there's, there's shortages everywhere you look at. Uh, people, um, so even if even if asset prices go down, I think the, the, the power of labor has increased. The power of workers has increased compared to that of consumer. The power of the young has increased compared to that of the old. Uh, I look at the Atlanta Fed uh, wage trackers. Uh, and I look at the, the income gaps between the educated and the uneducated, the, the, the poor and the rich, the young and the old, um, the white and the non-white. And every time it's the weaker, for lack of a better word, group that's making more money. So that tells me that we have kind of this historical shift. Uh, and it, it is possible that for the first time in 15 years, the fact that the wealthy are slightly less wealthy is not going to throw the economy into recession because we have so much labor shortage and and, and this historic expansion in margins of 40 years is starting to to work its way back. That's so fascinating. And that is what many had been hoping for, right? I mean, the U.S. economy runs on the consumer, just two-thirds or was two-thirds of the economy, and lower-income consumers tend to spend their money. So presumably, that would bode well for the U.S. economy. But Correct. I don't get the sense that you're bullish, Vincent. Presumably. No, I mean, uh, on the economy, I, I, I'm bullish on the economy. I'm just bearish on asset, on asset prices. And in a way, like if you want to take a almost moral view political about it you could say this is what we needed yeah <laughs> we, we had yeah we had that that is the reset that is exactly that we had 40 years of um uh, capital winning at the expense of labor uh, margins expanding um and and where it was mostly about you know owning assets instead of of paying for labor and it is changing um and i think that that model kind of died out in, in the COVID crisis. Uh, and now we, we enter one of these other historical cycles. So I think it's going to be better for you know, generational inequalities, uh, for economic growth, for hassle formation. Uh, but the problem is, you know, asset prices are priced for the old world, not for the new world. I think the new world looks a lot more in the 70s uh, when you had, you know, very strong labor, um, high inflation, higher rates, higher growth. So what does well in this because any kind of reset or transition is murky, right? It's 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 not immediately obvious what to do. So from an investor point of view, investors 
you know, think about the world through assets. And by the way, most of us, especially this is very U.S. centric, but most of us are because we're funding our retirement. What do we need to think about? What is what do opportunities look like in that kind of universe, if you're right? Well, the first thing I have to say is it is going to be harder. Like there, there are some environments that are inherently, regardless of what you do, um, we come from what I think is the easiest environment for uh, for asset allocators to one of the hardest. Disinflation mm. is fantastic for asset allocators because it, it creates a negative correlation between stocks and bonds. So you basically get paid to hedge your equity portfolio. And if you look at the 60-40 portfolio or the risk parity, I mean, all the things that target date, it's it's all based on that same idea that, uh, you know, you can diversify equity risk with, with long-term treasuries. And, you know, 60-40 portfolio was up, you know, 8% pretty much every year other than, you know, 2008. And of course, this year was down 10%, which yeah, kind of tells you something about where we are. Um, so we, we're not going to get there. I think getting, uh, you know, 2017, like you could get paid 3% to hedge Perfectly hedged. The correlation between stocks and bonds was close to uh, long-term treasury was close to minus 0.9. So, I mean, why why would you get paid to insure something? I mean, it's crazy. Imagine like your, your the car insurance company is paying you basically. That's what we had uh, for um, for 20 years now. Um, this is not going to come back. Uh, so you can look at for you can look at things that can replace that. Um, the most likely. If we move to an inflationary environment, the biggest risk is going to be inflation, right? So what is your hedge? It's things like commodities, things like possibly emerging markets, things like some value stocks, uh, but it's not going to, going to be as good as treasuries. I cannot imagine, I cannot envision an asset that will give you a positive real rate of return and hedge um, your, your equity risk. So it's inherently like your, your expected return has to go, has to go down. Mm. So, um, Adam from Red Bank was asking, um, it looks like parts of the inflation complex are beginning to roll over while interest rate momentum wanes. Do you think we're on the precipice of stagflation giving way to disinflation? Um, do you, I, it sounds like you don't. It sounds like you think the, the, that we've peaked, but we are in a higher inflation Cor environment, or do you see disinflation? Correct. Well, I see disinflation in the sense that we go from you know 8.5 to 6. Um so that is disinflation. The, the rate of change is, is slowing. Um, the problem is not slowing fast enough. I don't think at, at 6%, we can call it quits. We can say, oh, actually, I, I finished one of my reports uh, on this idea as a risk. Um, it reminds me of the Iraq war, you know, when um, uh, George Bush went on the, yeah, the aircraft, the, uh, carrier. aircraft carrier, mission accomplished in the back, you know, the Iraqis welcome us as liberator once again. Yeah, you know, um, highlighting a new era of peace and prosperity and democracy in the Middle East. Uh, I feel that there is a little bit a risk of that uh, if inflation does slow. Because I think the reason why Bush did that was he didn't want people to remember too much why we went into Iraq in the first place. <laughs> uh, kind of the same thing with the Fed is in a similar situation at this point where they kind of want us to forget the whole, you know, buying, you know, 30 billion of uh, mortgage-backed securities when, when you know, the real estate market was on fire, keeping QE for way too long, mistaking mm -hmm. uh, transitory inflation, um, calling the structural inflation transitory and all that stuff. So the ability to declare victory 
will be seized as soon as it appears. <laughs> uh, and my concern <laughs> is that that repeats itself, doesn't yes, it? Yes, that victory will be a pyrrhic one. You know, a victory that's worse than a defeat. Where, um, yes, it's, it's there will be some disinflation, but it's not going to go down anywhere cl- any, anywhere close to two percent. And maybe the bigger risk is actually that the Fed declares that victory uh, and then stops hiking. And, and then inflation comes back with a revenge in, in 2023, 2024, which is something the market is completely not, not pricing. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. You you sound like, um, you know, this is going to be the way you describe it, uh, an era where we're all going to have to become much more strategic in how we think about markets and more global, by the way, um, and thinking of, you know, something versus something else. So I want to I do want to dive into John and Paul both have a question related to the same thing. And um, that is something that you've been talking about. I've talked about it with you in the past, but you've been also tweeting about it. And that's the Swiss franc, the beloved Swiss franc. Um, so John saying, could Vincent update us on his recent Twitter? thread on the Swiss franc and how he views it as a good safety currency, especially given the incredible U.S. dollar strength we've seen in the DXY. Does he still think it will perform quite strongly versus other currencies, including the dollar in coming quarters? Well, that is an, an excellent question. Uh, and uh, first, I, I must admit that that call has not worked. Uh, and it worked versus the euro, which was my... <laughs> original call, but I think most most of the real vision were more looking for currency against the dollar. And nothing's worked against the dollar, really. I mean, some of the commodity currencies, the Brazilian real worked for a little bit, but uh, we, we have such a strong dollar that the Swiss franc, and it, it surprised me, honestly. I, I thought, given the volatility that we saw, I was surprised that the Swiss franc did not work better as a safe haven. Um, I cannot say I understand why. I suspect it's because of the Russia story. I mean, it's a big offshore banking sector. Um, uh, you know, some uh, some money is probably leaking out of there. I mean, who knows where the money comes from in, in Swiss bank accounts? Mm. Uh, so that would be a fairly benign. Um, so yeah, and I still think that is correct. So I, I would. I would hold on um, versus the dollar. It's difficult. My my inclination is that we had a very large move. Uh, you know, you don't see the yen and the euro fall by 15, 20% in, in 20 days like, like we have without some sort of a mean reverting bounce. If I'm right about the market outlook, meaning that we kind of have a quiet, you know, things settle down in, in the summer and we, we could see the the euro, the yen rally, so some so the dollar index goes down. I would allocate more to the Swiss franc. Um, I would especially allocate to the Swiss franc uh, or to Swiss assets as opposed to eurozone assets. Um, keep in mind, you know, Switzerland is not in the European Union or the eurozone. They have maintained their, their monetary flexibility. Um, I think eurozone. Um, monetary policy in the eurozone is going to be extremely complicated uh, because on the one hand you have 30% plus PPI, producer price uh, 
rising that's destroying the German industry. I mean, they make cars, you know, I mean, cars, you have very, very small margins. So if the cost of your input goes up by 30%, you get destroyed. So Germany will need a stronger euro. Uh, but at the same time, if you raise rates, you have the problem of Italy and Spain, really, the, the debt load of Italy. So it's going to be very complicated for Lagarde to, to negotiate that. Switzerland does not have these problems. Uh, and also the industrial focus of Switzerland is very different. Uh, Germany, Italy, uh, the industrial parts of Europe mostly focus on on things you can touch, like cars or parts or machines. Switzerland is mostly uh, the biggest export is um, pharmaceuticals and then it's luxury goods. So if we have a shock of uh, input costs, that doesn't matter too much. I mean, there is no input cost for drugs, right? And it's mostly intellectual property. Mm-hmm. And, and you see this divergence in the PPI. Uh, I think Germany is up 34%. Switzerland is up only 4%. Uh, so if you think about the relative margin of the Swiss industry instead of Germany, so maybe the right trade would be to go along the uh, the Swiss market index versus the DAX index or the uh, the FTSE maybe in Italy. Uh, and, yeah, and, that's and that, that, that speaks to Paul's question, what's the best way to play it? He's asking about FXF. Uh, sorry, I, I did not hear the question. Sure. Um, he's uh, Paul is asking the follow-up, How? what's the best play, way to play that, uh, the Swiss play? You were just mentioning, um, you know, Swiss equity versus DAX. I think he was wondering about um, FXF, which is, it looks like Invesco currency ETF, Swiss franc ETF. Is that another way to do that? Yes. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, you can buy the uh, the, the the currency um, directly. Um, I, I like the um, I like the equity index part because you, you're getting a second source of of return. In my view, so you get the the monetary side of thing where you know that you bet on the fact that the Swiss franc is traditionally safe haven. They have much more reserves. They have an unconstrained monetary policy. They have a fantastic economy too. I mean, Switzerland, the unemployment rate, you know, inflation in Switzerland is less than 2%. Unemployment rate is at 3%. They will have a budget surplus this year. I mean, it really is a a paradise (laughs) compared to the rest of the Eurozone. So they have a much, so the currency angle is covered. And then on top of that, you get that margin effect where you basically bet on pharmaceuticals versus heavy industry. Um, So interesting. I, I, uh, Vincent, I want to squeeze one more in from Kyle. Um, and it's something we touched on before, but we weren't super specific about it. Um, high, how high will the 10-year Treasury yield go? Um, and how will that, I mean, he's saying how will, but I, I guess you could just say, will that help the little guy? I guess the savers. Uh, it's two hard questions. Um <laughs> Right at the end, how, we save them for you. <laughs> how high, I, I would think higher. I mean, if, if I'm correct about inflation being kind of a more secular thing and, and looking at a decade of 5% plus inflation, um, you know, the long end needs to move. Uh, if if we remove that dovish, that kink in the curve uh, in, in 2023, that will feed to the long end. So the long end goes up. Um, how much up can we tolerate? I don't know. Part of me thinks at some point, you know, we may need to have yield curve control. Uh, but in general, I am of the view that we can have higher rate for longer. Like the tolerance for higher rate is not huge, but it's more than what people think. People think, oh, I, they, they replay the whole 2018 playbook basically as soon as, as we cross 3%, everything went to hell. It may happen in, in capital markets, but as far as the real economy, maybe it can keep going. And I like the 
the second part of this question, uh, which is very kind of heterodox view, um, but I can relate to that, the view that in some way, I, I wonder if, it, you know, low rates really, did low rates really help the little guy? Mm. I mean, they made every asset prohibitively expensive, uh, and then they made uh, low rates mean that it's impos impossible to compound wealth. I mean, for most people, the, the way out of poverty is you, you save and, and, and you compound at a positive rate. You, you remove that. Um, it's very hard to to make it, and every every asset is unaffordable. So it could be that there is there there might be something to his point on on um, on higher rates uh, actually helping with this uh, inequality issue. Yeah, I've been wondering about the same. I mean, it used to be as you, especially as we have you know aging baby boomers who are you know theoretically, you know, not wanting to be in risky assets. It's an interesting, it's an interesting question. Um, we have, we have got to end it there. We just scratched the surface, Vincent, as always with you, we're going to have to have you back and do a deep dive um, in a separate thing so we can really unravel some of this because some of the views are contrarian, but I think it's a perfect example of why it's so important to have this sort of macro conversation um, and understand what, what you agree with and what your framework is as you're deciding what to do. And, you know, if you think there's a reset, how to think about this and be more strategic. So, so incredibly appreciative of you coming on and sharing your thoughts with us today. Thanks, Maggie. It was, it was fun as usual. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this is exactly the kind of conversation that we're having as part of our global recession series. I'm sure some of you have been able to catch those great interviews, and this is why we're having it, so we can figure out sort of how to position. So, um, right at the end, we're going to play a little bit more information um, on how you can find them and how you can get involved um, in that series and Real Vision. And we'll see you again same time tomorrow with Ash Bennington. We'll be here with Michael Gayat, which is going to be a great conversation. So be sure to join us then. In the meantime, take care and good luck out there. It's a really complicated world out there. We've got massive inflation, recession fears, war in Europe, COVID, China issues. What the hell's happening? Everyone's got an opinion. But who's right? Who's wrong? As co-founder of Real Vision, I've got my own view. But maybe I'm wrong too. And I want to go and find out more from real experts, real in-depth analysis. And I've hand-chosen my experts for this two-week journey of discovery in global recession. Is everyone wrong? I've chosen people like Peter Zihan to talk to them about geopolitics. David Rosenberg about the economy, and Pierre Andran, the world's most famous energy trader, about how to navigate the oil markets and where it's all going. This starts on May the 2nd, and I'm going to learn so much about what really is going on and how to best navigate it. Yes, not everybody's going to be saying the same thing, but it's going to allow me to piece together an investment framework to navigate these complicated times. Now, normally, we'd give you seven-day trial for $1, but because this is so important for all of you, and I think it's one of the most important pieces of content we've ever done, we're extending that free trial for two weeks for $1. So you get the entire campaign of all of these great minds. And it's only $1 for all of this. So just go to realvision.com forward slash global recession to find out more and join me as I try and figure out what the hell's going on. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. 
Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.